Yeah, this is going to be great. This uh, is going to no. be even more useful than the normal two, times. Two, one, 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 two, three. Zero. Zero. <laughs> Taylor, on a scale of one to ten, how effective do you think that is for actually syncing the audio tracks? Um, zero. <laughs> yep. Instead of catching up like we usually do on the podcast, today, Adam has brought in a special guest. I have. Uh, we wanted to have people on the podcast to talk about other musical things. Eventually, you guys are going to get tired of hearing our opinions and perspectives. Uh, so I got. A, I asked a friend of mine named Taylor. He's a percussionist at the University of Nebraska. Is that right? Did I get that? At Omaha, yeah. At Omaha. That's why it's UNO. There it is. I couldn't remember all those letters. Um, we were roommates at our undergrad for a while, and we just became really close friends. We talk about music and stuff. Uh, so we are glad to welcome today Taylor. Thank you for having me. Yay. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, so how are things over at UNO? What is that all about? What are you doing? Um, so it's good. I just finished the first year of my master's degree. I'm getting a master's in percussion performance. Um, moved up here from uh, Mississippi. I finished my undergraduate at Delta State University. Uh, I, I was at William Carey with Adam, but then I transferred out. And so I ended up here. My teacher at Delta State knew the teacher that was here. And so he, you know, is one of the best schools. It was free also. That makes the decision easy. Uh, Cause that's what, I recently got married in December. And so that was kind of like a big choice of where- Shout we out to Emily, fan of the podcast, friend of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's, she's asleep on the couch in the living room right now. Um, nice. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that was kind of like a big decision uh, to choose where to live, that we're doing the same thing right now. I'm getting ready to audition for DMA stuff in December and January um, to go get a doctorate after this in percussion performance as well. Yeah, and so it's good. Omaha's gotten really hot in the past week. Uh, it's like almost 100 degrees here. When it was, like, I'm not even kidding, maybe a month and a half ago it snowed. So. Oh, wow. I was yeah. going to say, Taylor, you got nothing on El Paso, but it was not snowing here, so it wasn't quite that dramatic. Yeah, that's what, it just randomly, at like the end of March or something, I don't know, my time's been blurred ever since um, the coronavirus happened, but like we were we were just hanging out in the apartment, and we opened the windows, and it was pure white outside, and it snowed like five inches. Oh my. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And so that was the craziest thing, I guess, about the weather up here. And then also now we're at that weird point, uh, I guess, since I am further up north than I've ever been, um, the sun doesn't go down until like nine o'clock. And so that's what oh, when yeah. I, usually when I come home like uh, at night, the sun is just going down. So it's always crazy to think about the times. And so you said a DMA in percussion performance. What do you like want to do? What's the plan after that? Um, I, th- I think the easy plan is to go teach, um, to, you know, hopefully find a university job, even though there's so little. Preach, uh, preach. Yeah. Um, to, but so hopefully find a job like that um, to provide some stability for uh, me and Emily. And uh, but really, that's just kind of a gateway. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, but kind of like my newest passion has been new music. And so, you know, writing new music, commissioning new music. Uh, doing things like that and then finding ways to perform just do that and it seems for a percussionist right now um the most stability you're ever going to find is go get a teaching job that will 
give you benefits and then you can go make your real money other places. So Taylor, I have what might be a silly question, but um, okay. it just came to me and I'm curious. So like as a percussionist, what kind of stuff do you like to play the most? Like, are you into doing like drumline marching band stuff? Do you like orchestral, wind band, percussion ensemble? Like what's, what's your jam or more like solo rep? Uh, so I have gravitated more towards solo and chamber rep in the, cool. uh, basically since I've started my masters. Um, I, so I grew up uh, like a typical high school drumline person. Mm-hmm. Um, I marched WGI. You saw the movie Drumline and said, I have to do that with my life. <laughs> I am Nick Cannon. Is that uh, that one? Or is that a different yeah. movie? <laughs> Somebody, I think Jeremiah, you know Jeremiah. Nobody else knows Jeremiah. He used to complain oh to me gosh. about the inaccuracies in the movie Drumline. I mean, he's right, but also, yeah, so I kind of, I did a lot of that. Um, I, so I went to community college um, as well. Uh, lots of different schools for my undergrad. But, uh, and that, I went to that college mostly because they had like a huge drum line, huge marching band, um, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And I could, you know, get a cheaper uh, degree because mm-hmm. I went for free for those two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started with that and that was kind of like my thing. And that's also kind of the thing that kind of gets me jobs right now is my resume is very heavily front-loaded on marching band that I've written for a lot of people, I've consulted, I've done tons of things. Um, But the problem now is I kind of hate marching band. Uh, (laughs) There's a lot of like questions with like educational outcomes. There's things that I don't, you know, when it becomes that competitive and it becomes those kinds of things, uh, it it doesn't seem like it's about the students and, you know, their livelihood Mm -hmm. anymore. Um, Well, and... Um, I have a friend over in Texas who he uh, maybe in a similar position. He had like just finished his master's in percussion performance recently. But then like his thing was he's doing a lot of teching and running around to different schools. But his problem is what you would teach to be a good educator as far as percussionist goes and the things that they want you to know. He said a lot of the directors out there are just worried about, yeah, teach them this honor band piece. And it's like, okay, well that doesn't really support them as a musician. They just learn the piece so that they might be competitive for honor band. So I don't know if that's something similar to what you're saying, but. Yeah, yeah, that's, Exactly. And that's also a large part of the reason why I want to, um, you know, go straight to a university setting. Um, cause I don't, I'm not certified to teach in public schools that I, you got a performance undergrad. Um, so I couldn't, you know, I would have to go through some hoops to get a job as a band director now. Um, and I kind of did that on purpose a little bit to, you know, not give myself the safety net because I think it'd be easy at any point to come, uh, not to say that that is easy, Um, to correct myself there but at any point I would never you know push myself um, if I had a comfortable job that paid me real money instead of TA money yeah well and um, like another thing that you're saying or that came to mind at least was teching for bands as a percussionist is in high high demand because not a lot of band directors come from percussionist backgrounds and like I know a large band program in the Mississippi area that anytime they've had an opening, they've always discussed like, okay, it'd be nice to have a real percussionist on staff because that's where we know a weakness is. 
and it just never really happens. Yeah, well, that's what I think. And so my experience, um, I always give the disclaimer whenever um, band directors reach out to me uh, of like, you know, I'm not normal. I don't I don't teach the same way that these guys that marched drum corps do. Um, and I don't have the same goals that your students may sound like crap for the whole season. And I'm OK with that because, you know, there's long term goals that I'm working on whenever I get in front of students, even if I'm only with them for two weeks for a band camp. You know, I'm worried about, like, what they're going to be doing in, like, you know, four years when they're a business major at college and stuff like that. And so that's been, like, the biggest thing. Because even, like, when I got to Nebraska, I started consult uh, consulting with the school that uh, most of their percussion guys came all at night. So they had nobody for their morning rehearsals. So I would wake up early and go to their school. Um, and there was just a huge disconnect because the guy wanted to be super competitive and he wanted it to sound better immediately. And that was kind of like their expectation for me was, um, you know, when I showed up, oh, why don't they immediately sound better if they have somebody in front of them? And it's like, well, I mean, it doesn't work like that. You know, it's not like a, you know, adjust your ear or adjust this or that or that, and then it'll immediately sound better. It's like a muscle memory thing. And so you have to spend hours and hours and hours to get these things locked in and solidified with the students before they'll ever even start to sound kind of good and so that's like a, that's the common thing i've run into with band directors of a lot of them just don't have the patience uh for like a good knowledgeable percussion section well and it's you know a lot of times in like middle school uh percussion parts if you're playing in a concert band in that setting what you're asked to do is generally far beneath in technique what you would need to do entering ninth grade for you know some of these larger scale marching bands where you're expected to know a variety of different rudiments whereas at the middle school level if you didn't really teach all the rudiments you know you could get away with some flam some paradiddles although i mean i've still found it like hard in concert music where I've looked at a snare part and looked at either eighth notes or sixteenths and gone, you know, they should play this as a paradiddle instead of just straight eights. Um, which I think is another like talking point, but it's one of those I could see as a band director where middle school level, you could let them get far behind on the percussion side of things. And then once they get to that high school level that there is, a drastic change because it's like okay we're ready for you as a ninth grader to keep up with you know these junior and seniors in high school yeah that's i mean i completely agree and i think holistically that's the fault of the books that the bandwrackers use to teach their students um, hey the red book is the holy grail <laughs> yeah so that's kind of like the you know the the first thought so when i when I said red book, which red book did you think I meant? Uh, Standard of Excellence is the one that I yeah. thought of. Yeah. <laughs> I thought of The Hobbit, the, the original red book. Of course you did. You I didn't know. think of... Oh, what is the second book in the Inheritance Cycle? Uh, it Eldest. doesn't matter. Eldest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, no, I didn't. But, sorry. No, that's even further off track. Um, when are we gonna do mean, a, where are we going to do an Aragon podcast, though? No, oh man, I'm all for that. I read those books. <laughs> Taylor yeah, can oh, have oh my boy. spot. This Taylor. might be a thing me and Taylor do on the side now. There you go. <laughs> I, I mean, read those wait, in middle wait. school for like the uh, whatever the reading thing was that you could get points. The AR points. Yeah, I remember. I think it was like seventh grade reading class. I had like a 300 average because I just read a bunch of crazy long books. 
and took the tests. I used to take tests on books that I had read like years ago and just see how close I could get to a good score. <laughs> I was just like farming, you know, there's like 20 Redwall books at this point in time. And it's like, well, I read this Redwall book when I was like in first grade. Now it's third grade. I bet I can still crush it. And it's like, no, I didn't get any of them right. But oh my God. You know, I was like farm. I was farming AR tests, you know? <laughs> now, we, we had kids that were doing that, except they knew they definitely didn't read that book. They were just taking the tests and saying, okay, how many points am I going to get? And so they would just do that over and over again to see if they could hit whatever mark they needed to hit to go on like <laughs> yeah. the field trip or something. So, um, but Taylor, I really enjoyed the piece that you commissioned and I listened to it a couple times. Uh, do you guys want to talk about that first before we get into some of what Taylor's written himself? Sure. Yeah, let's go. Um, so I noticed in the description of YouTube that it had four distinct parts. I was trying not to research the piece too much before I listened to it because I was interested in what I was hearing without that background information. Mm -hmm. um, and so I will say that I grew up in like a class 5A marching band that was, I would say, generally fairly stereotypical. Like we were top three at most competitions and so to me there was there were some flashbacks to like huh i'm thinking of like patriot not necessarily patriotic shows but different like shows that have been stylized like some of this piece uh with like recording of either news clippings or historical moments in the background and there's like a bunch of other stuff going on um but yeah, I really enjoyed it. How were the sections structured like it was um, put in the or the description? Or, let's see, there's, I think it's the description, not the comments. But in, in the description, it's like history, something, science, space. Was yeah, there a specific order? Yeah, there's so in the order of the piece, it's space, mind, um, history, and humanity. Got you. Well, it was just funny because, like, I heard um, Neil deGrasse Tyson come on, and then I was like, wait a second. I know I've heard him say these things before. And so then I went, when I was looking at the description and space was first, I was like, but he says that, like, six minutes into the piece. Mm -hmm. And so it was just, I don't know, for me, it was one of those things that I was like, wait is this the space part or where are we so um so one thing that if somebody went and listened to this and it's the piece is called expanse and retrospect by caleb pickering and we'll make sure to put i'm gonna a link yeah i'm gonna link to it and post it and all that it was one of those there is a we've talked about this on the podcast before a general topic or style that is that marimba playing it's more of the 21st century sound generally because that's where like the music comes from i would say there is a general um minimalistic quality to it i don't necessarily know that i would say it was but there is there there's a certain like hum or timbre to the music that i think you hear and that that kind of the first time that I heard it, that was more of what I was hearing than all of the cool things behind the scenes. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I really enjoyed it. 
And I think the first thing that I started to think about, because um, when you guys go click the link to the video, which I highly recommend, you'll see Taylor playing it and he's got headphones on. And so my question is, how odd was it for you to, because I assume you're listening to the recording of the voices and the tape, how odd was it to listen to that while you tried to play the marimba um and is it like time do you have like a click in there too or no no so uh <laughs> it's i i don't know if you'll ever listen to this so i actually so the composer didn't give me a click and i went into logic and added a click and then my teacher <laughs> called me out and told me to stop it because <laughs> um, that's what like i started to play this piece with uh through zoom and stuff like that uh like when we were doing the zoom lessons in my apartment because i have like a vibraphone sitting right behind me. So he was like, you know, he's like, I see what you're doing um, and I see why you did it. It doesn't make sense and you need to stop doing it. Cause he's like, I think it's like uh, inhibiting your, your like musical possibilities. Cause I, he's like, I think the track does a good enough job giving you things. And so there's like little cues in it. Um, so one of the big things about this piece is most of it is improvisatory. Oh. Uh, yeah. So most of like he, Caleb gives very, uh, rough ideas so like let's talk about like the first section the space section um i have so it's like i'm holding like three different kinds of mallets um there's like a soft one then there's two rubber mallets on the inside and like a harder mallet um the rubber mallet parts are all me that he gave like a rough guideline of what he wanted there but like he encourages like the performer to do that um and then there's even like one section in the uh the third section where there's like you know the recordings of like Obama's been elected, JFK was shot, all those kinds of things. Which um, is like the news clipping, right? Yeah, yeah. All Caleb did there was give me um, a six note tone row. And through that whole section until where I bow at the end. When you said when you said rough sketch in the beginning, I guess my question is I know that composers, when they do have done things like that before, they will give like here's this pitch class set, pick from it, or like follow like you were saying follow this tone row i guess how much of a sketch did he give you was it kind of follow these notes or he gave you some rhythms to kind of go off of how much are you having to improv and come up with on your own so he gave me some example rhythms and basically said something like this you don't have to do this but something like it um and it both of those like improv Thing. It starts on like the high C of the uh, vibraphone, and then it goes down to the the middle C of it, um, halfway through the P or halfway through that first section, um, and so. But then the melody that you hear over it is notated, and so I and all of those melodies are like pings in the track themselves, and so the they line up with like what the track's doing. Um, there is like a rhythmic background part in it. Uh, as well that kind of helps me stay on time but it, it, it's very like mixed meter I think I mean it goes from like 3-4 to 4-4 four, four to back to 3-4 and then to 5-8 so it kind of mm-hmm. shifts on this like you know this like upending like it lets you solidify and then it moves you a little bit um, and that's in the melody as well that the melody usually plays on that sh- quick shift from the 5-8 back to the 3-4 well and that was going to be my one of my other talking points was when I listened to it um, while I assume you have meters and other things written, that sometimes it did seem like there was not a strong pulse somewhere. Yeah. And I, 
I wasn't sure if that was intentional or if that was more, I was a little disorientated because of the instrumentation, because of tape and, uh, is it vibraphone yeah, or yeah. marimba? It, yeah. Vibe. Okay. Livy, Adam, I feel like I've... I've thrown a lot of things in there. Did somebody else want no, to No, no, that was all good. You're um, the, I mean, you're the one who's got more of a focus in composing, so this is great. I, I did have one quick question, um, especially now that you told us more about like how he put those sections in the piece. Um, did you commission this personally, or were you part of like a consor- consortium, consortium? However- <laughs> um, so I, I did this myself. I, so this was originally going to be played on my first graduate recital, but mm-hmm. that was canceled because the world basically ended. Um, yes. What do you mean? <laughs> um. <laughs> so since since it was just you, how much did you guys collaborate? Like, did you just kind of give him free reign because you knew his music and you were like, I like everything you do? Or did he kind of customize it for what you were looking for? Um, a little bit of both. So I, when I okay. reached out to him, he asked some like general questions, you know, like, how long do you want the piece for? What is like, what are we writing it for? Um, Mm -hmm. stuff like that and then I kind of told him so I've played a couple of other pieces Um, so there's a piece called The Warning Lights Are Blinking Red by a guy named Ivan Trevino who is a Mexican American Mm. composer um, out of Eastman I think he lives in Austin, Texas now but he um, that piece is for marimba and tape and I played it on my senior recital of my undergrad Uh, but the piece is based off of like a lot of uh, quotes from the book 1984 by George Orwell Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and so a lot of it is about like, you know, it's like there's warning signs and the things that we see, um, it's, you know, in trying to avoid getting too political, it's a political statement as a piece of music. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. so I wanted, I really liked that as, you know, a performer, I got a lot of, uh, feedback and a lot of not like people, you know, wondering why I'm playing music like that and trying to Mm -hmm. make these statements that even, you know, the things that come up as talking points from my performances, uh, even with, uh, you know, like family members, they're mm-hmm. huge talking points that we can talk hours about. Yeah. Um, and so it's, you know, I enjoyed that like social aspect as a performer and I took a lot of, uh, I felt a lot more responsibility to represent that type of music um, mm-hmm. from that section. And so when I reached out to Caleb, I had known him, I, uh, my undergrad teacher had also like commissioned a piece from him. Um, so I think he's like a great new and upcoming up and coming composer. Uh, so, you know, I just took advantage of like good timing and stuff because he's finishing his DMA right now at uh, James Madison University. I actually think he just finished it. He's a doctor now. But, um, awesome. but he, uh, uh, so I just kind of told him, is like, you know, I want to really play on the concept of like existentialism, uh, you know, questioning why, like who we are, why we are, the information that we take in, why is it, why do we get these, um, you know, perspectives from it. Um, it's funny that Seth, you know, talked about, uh, at first, you know, there's, there's tons of these things on the surface level of the piece that you hear, but then you go back and you kind of get a lot more of the tape and the voice recordings and you're kind of like, oh, and then you start questioning like where we are. And it's like, all of that was, um, intentional for the most part. And that was kind of like what I reached out to Caleb for, cause he has another piece, um, also called an assembly of outrage, which is about gun violence. Um, and that was part of, like, that was a large reason why I reached out to him for this, because I was like, you know, um, vibraphone and tape don't, is like a medium that doesn't have a lot of literature right now in percussion. There's tons of, like, snare drum and tape and marimba and tape, but vibraphone is a timbre that's not often used. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and so that was kind of, 
I wanted to deepen the literature for that. And it's funny, there's actually another group that had also commissioned a Vibraphone Tank piece from at the exact same time. <laughs> and so, and that one is also like political. It's kind of about like global warming and stuff like that. Uh, and so, so that was kind of the goal, you know, is to create this like multi-layered uh, piece that, you know, from the surface level, you question a lot of these things, but the more and more that you do it, then you start hopefully questioning, you know, who you are, why you are, why are you doing what you're doing, why are you listening to this mediocre recording on YouTube and stuff like that, you know? <laughs> that's cool. That's awesome that you got to put out that that's what you were looking for. That's cool. Because I know, at least with my friends who have been part of consortiums, that, like, it's more of just, like, I want a piece for this instrumentation, like, as a group. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the times that's kind of as far as it goes. And then it's just at the composer's liberty. So it's really cool that you were able to, like, communicate, like, I'm looking to go for this message or this concept. So that's awesome. Yeah. I was also a part of a, there was a consortium from Marimba Solo about, um, like, mental health. And it was like mm -hmm. bipolar and like kind of things like that. And I think the piece does a really great job. But also that was the reason why I wanted to commission a piece myself is I mm -hmm. had no say so in that piece. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. That's been my friend's experience too. You just kind of have to put your money in and let go. <laughs> yeah. And of course, I mean, I didn't pay a ton to get into that consortium, but yeah. Um, I mean, it was just, it was frustrating because it's like, you know, there's things like I probably will never play this piece and that's not a dig mm -hmm. to the composer or anything like that. Um, I think it's a great piece. It's just not the voice or the sound that I go for as an artist. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, to not be a part of that was kind of an odd experience. But I, I'm not even kidding. I think there's probably close to 100 members in the consortium. So I completely understand why. <laughs> right. Well, and um, not to necessarily take it all the way over into nar narrative land of music theory, but... That, oh, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, for me, that is one um talking point for me as far as how could we better define some things in narrative analysis is because you we are defining so many things on everybody should be able to recognize it this way but kind of like you're talking about with you know group commissions versus solo is that when you do it on your own that it's much closer to the message that you were asking for whereas when there's multiple people involved and the composer is trying to figure out what does this message mean to each person that you know it's going to miss some people because not everybody has the exact same interpretation or oh, collection of cultural values mm -hmm. so which um you know, kind of, I maybe Adam's going there, but I would say that there is, there's a lot you could talk about as far as narrative analysis goes with this piece and symbolism and other things that come out of it. Yeah, and I will say there is a lot of decisions that I made that I will probably never tell anybody but my wife. And I'm not saying that they're like that personal, but it's, uh, I, you know, going into this, I thought a lot of, um, there's like an interview with Donald Glover where they ask him like, what does this is America mean? And he's just like, I don't want to tell you. Um, and I think that's like super, super critical to processing music um, as like a first go through is that you don't have any like pre generated opinions. And so that's, I know I've already talked a lot about like the different sections and stuff like that, but there's decisions to like, you know, per note of like why I used this here or why I did this here um, like per note by note that I made 
for, you know, like a specific idea that I had in my head um, that nobody may ever discover. And I'm completely okay with that because if that's the goal, then cool. I think my performance was okay enough to have communicated what I wanted. And so it's cool to see what everybody else will see now, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something I, I really appreciate about really good art. Livy and I are both really big fans of the filmmaker David Lynch. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one thing that he does is he never talks about the meaning to anything that he's ever made. Um, one of my favorite interviews he does, he says, you know, Eraserhead, I should do his voice. Eraserhead <laughs> is one of my most spiritual movies I've ever made. And the interview <laughs> says, really? Tell us more about that. And Lynch says, no. <laughs> <laughs> You know, when you did that um, voice, he just, he you make said, me think of Michael Scott doing the Chris Rock impression. <laughs> oh, that's really not what I'm going for. This is just a flat Midwestern man who yells a lot. That's it. And the the character that he plays in Twin Peaks has a hearing uh, impediment and like hearing aids and just yells every time he's on screen because he can't hear. And it's just because David Lynch thought it would be hilarious to have a character who yelled all of their dialogue and had to come up with a logical reason for why that would be true. anyway the point was is that he doesn't talk about the things that he's made one of his big points is like that when we name something we put an identifier on it and that like connotates meaning even when we don't mean it to like by the nature of naming things and again this is very like uh semiotics and getting in like the narrative stuff but he doesn't even like to really name stuff because that that attaches meaning to it that you may not have meant and so i think yeah it's, it's very cool that like you say that there's some of that in your performance um, that is meaningful to you and that other people may or may not pick up on. I, I think that's really cool. Yeah. And that's what I mean. And to be fair, everything that I've said so far, you would find by buying the piece and opening it up to the program notes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So that's Wait, what this I mean. Is this is an exclusive? This is an exclusive <laughs> look? I mean, it's from my voice, so for whatever that's worth. <laughs> I'll add like a nice effect on it and logic so it sounds silky smooth. But Just uh, lots of reverb. Yeah. <laughs> Way um, too much reverb. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think, you know, I've to, I've, I do feel like I've said a lot about the piece, but I don't feel like I've told anything that gives away that experience for a listener. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, another thing that I really liked, and you were talking about, especially um, there's not a lot of rep for the vibraphone and tape um, genre, but I was impressed with how the different the amount of sounds that you could get out of the vibraphone because i know that there are different mallets of -hmm. course and you see that you're switching mallets a couple on several occasions but there were other things like um bowing the bowing i'd never seen the bowing before well and like the first time i saw it um and I guess, Taylor, I'll let you actually explain in a second. But the first time I saw it, I wasn't sure what you were bowing. Because um, oh. I, I was more like passively listening to it one time. Because mm-hmm. for me, I knew that when I turned it on the first time, I was going to hear this sound. And I didn't really want to believe that that was the whole piece. Oh, um, gotcha. So I kind of, I, I like primed myself once. And that way, when I really was digging into it, it was easier to get past that layer that I think would have been in my way previously. Which, you know, this is another thing that we could talk about, but 
I think sometimes listening to percussion pieces like this where you really do need to get past that first layer and be able to listen deeper to enjoy the piece in its entirety that sometimes it's not fair that if you're in a concert setting you just get to hear it once mm-hmm. whereas you know in this um through youtube you can watch it multiple times and i think the second and the third time you really do get to take away something else that you don't get the first time but all that's to say that the bowing on the bar i didn't know that you could do and that was a really cool thing i thought you were i didn't know if you were bowing like the resonator somehow or (laughs) if you it was like yeah i didn't know because um let's see vibraphone has the little they're not valves uh i can't think of the right term for the rotator inside of the resonators oh, yeah, to get like the actual like uh, vibrating sound yeah um i didn't know if like somehow you were bowing on that or but when i watched it the second time i was like oh he's just bowing on the bar and it's creating that vibration yeah i mean it's just it's yeah creating that without like any kind of contact sound hopefully i mean there's some places where you kind of get like that the hair sound um but it's just tons of rosin on the bar or on the bow itself and then that it's funny that you talk about that bowing section that was probably the most difficult part of the whole piece well and so that my related to that my other question was like in prepared piano there's several things that you have to do to get the piano set up to be able to play a piece with it whether it's attaching screws whether it's attaching paper clips there and prepared piano music there's you affix things inside the piano and then when you play it it alters the sound of the string mm-hmm. so i i also wasn't sure if you had to do anything like that there were just sometimes sounds that i heard from the tape and i couldn't tell was that a tape sound or did he do something else beforehand to the vibraphone so that he could get that sound when he needed to in the piece? So uh, to answer your question, no, this, like I could go play this on any vibraphone in the world. I would just need my mallet and bow basically and a speaker. That's cool. Um, so but it's, it's funny that you talked about that because, um, so another one of the things I did like a huge research paper at the end of my first semester um, about like accessibility and percussion. And that's part of the, re- that was one of the goals with this piece as well, is you know, that anybody that owns mallets and a bow could play this. Cause I mean, uh, Caleb, like with the, like the rubber mallets and all the different mallet changes, um, Caleb doesn't specify any of that. Um, that was kind of more of my decisions and the, uh, the aural landscape that I wanted to uh, present in the piece. And so, I mean, you could play this potentially with just four mallets and a bow and, you know, go to any high school or college that owns a vibraphone and you'd be good to go. I'd it's seen awesome. a percussionist uh, bow on, like, pitched cymbals before, but I hadn't on a vibraphone. So yeah, you can, cool. yeah, we can bow. We're, we're, bo- we're asked to bow a lot on cymbals. Um, the instruments get a little bit weirder. Uh, a lot of people bow on marimba, and I don't like doing that because of the wood. I, do, I just feel like it's a really weird like not good thing for the wood to get that rosin on there um i there's no actual like scientific thing behind that it's just me being weird but it's become like a, a thing because with, with you know like our instant all these instruments are technically idiophones which are like you know you strike it and that produces the sound so there's always some kind of like initial noise or contact sound so the bow is like the perfect way to just create like sustained noise from the instrument that we can't get 
anywhere else. Like, especially on marimba that doesn't even have a pedal. Like, it's a quickly decaying sound. It's the same thing, you know. That's the perfect way to create a sustained noise from that instrument. Well, and it was a very pure sound. That was the other thing that I liked about it was... um, because you get that sl- there's no contact it's just if if you were going to create like a studio quality just drop a sound of like here's the pitch to me that's almost what it is of like it's very it's a very pure timbre it's nice to hear um to to be completely honest and transparent so this section, when I actually recorded it, the video that you see, or sorry, the audio that you hear is not from the video that you see. Um, I, I actually, thought that might be true, just because there are so many camera shots. Yeah, well, I, uh, I so figured it was up until up. up until the Boeing, it is. Well, I have like microphones and stuff, but like what you see is what you get. But the actual ending, I went back and re-recorded. <laughs> um, so it's like you know from a completely different recording session at the very end. Um, because I messed up when we actually, you, you know, I can't, you can't really tell, I don't think, on, like, myself. But, um, the, yeah, so, like, all that bowing and all of, like, the, the mallet work with my, with the opposite hands from the bow is not original sound <laughs> from the video. Gotcha. Improvised stuff in that section that you re-recorded? Can we go back and look and find all the notes that aren't right? <laughs> um, no, actually, so that last section is strictly notated like whenever i pick up the bow it's he specifically asks for what i do um so that's what that's what made it easy and it's like spot on with the track and so that's why that's why i was able to like you know if i messed up a section in uh that i was i would just be kind of you know messed up Uh, because we also only did uh so the recording we only did two takes and i was like all right that's it we're not going to spend you know eight hours with me trying to get the perfect take or trying to get the perfect shots for everything um, we're just because there was also like a level of authentic, uh, authenticity that I wanted from the video, like the videography of it. Because um, my wife was kind of in charge of that, but I wanted, you know, like where you see her and things like that, like where she is in the shot. And, you know, I was okay with that. Or like where you see like the room, or there's like one shot where you can see some like wind chimes sitting up against the wall because we didn't move it far enough back. And, you know, I wanted all of that because I wanted to present. Um, you know, like a whole open level of like what this recording process is. Um, yeah, that's so, what I say when our podcasts don't sound that great. You know, it's more about the authentic <laughs> impression of it than it is our, our mastery of and expertise of the technology. I was going to say, as a continuing theme, I think for our listeners that are hearing this after the, they've listened to the three albums, parts one and two, that was the general theme that we were saying we enjoyed about the albums was we like the authentic organic nature. And I think that the video has that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as much as a cop out as it is that Adam pointed out, it, I mean, it is true. That I he, wasn't saying you meant it as a cop out. I mean, it as a cop out hundred <laughs> uh, percent. Yeah. I mean, that was just kind of something we considered, um, you know, cause we also didn't want to strive for perfectionists because there's always going to be something wrong and, I don't know, as human beings presenting art to another human being, you don't want to create this like fake layer of perfection that's not realistic. Mm-hmm. Unless anybody has some final thoughts on Expanse and Retrospect by Caleb Pickering. Um, Taylor, would you like to move on to some of the other projects that you're working on? Yeah, that sounds good for me. Um, so... Uh, kind of what I'm doing right now, uh, I'm in the very, very early, uh, 
parts of another commissioning project. Um, I I don't think I've told Adam about this, so. Um, but anyways, uh, I'm trying to write, I'm trying to commission another piece. I've reached out to um, one composer and I'm kind of waiting for a response right now um, to see what they say. Hopefully they'll say yeah, because he's kind of like the choice for it, I think. Um, but it's in a response to um, kind of the current status. You know, the I've taken like a political view <laughs> for most of these things. And so this the next piece would kind of be um, a, uh, a response to what's uh, currently happening as of today. Um, whatever today's date is, I don't even know anymore. But, is it the uh, 6th? Is it June 6th uh, as of this recording, I believe? Yeah. June yeah. 6th, 2020. So, just, so kind of like the recording. If you go back and, we don't even have to say what it is, if you just go back and look at your calendar at uh, what this weekend is, uh, you'll know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so just I'm reaching out to try to get a piece for um, snare drum and tape. Uh, I know I talked crap earlier about there's already tons of pieces for snare drum. Um, there, the utilization of the snare drum is specifically like what I'm looking for uh, in this piece, and that's why I'm only re reaching out to like specific composers in the process. So that's kind of something that I'm working on now. I don't want to talk about it too much because it may change a lot, and then, or it may just never happen. You know, somebody may just ditch the project and we start working on something else. So it's kind of one thing. Uh, but in that project that we're looking for, and this is determining who I reach out to, um, I'm looking at. Uh, approaching snare drum in like a non-rhythmic uh, or like monotonal approach and so by that I mean uh, you know there's like snare drum like can get tons of different sounds out of it uh, if I would have been more prepared I probably would have like done some kind of example for this but you know there's like you can hit in different places on the head and it gets tons of different sounds you can turn the snares on and off depending on where you hit on the drumstick or how tightly you hold the drumstick there's different sounds and so the what I'm interested in this next project is to see how we can approach um, the snare drum as more than just like a monotonal instrument. Because I think a lot of composers get stuck on like, oh, you know, it's snare drum and I can't do anything, so I'm just gonna write a bunch of notes for it and I uh, hope this sounds cool, you know? And then we, I think <laughs> they miss out on like the artistic um, possibilities of the instrument and the timbral possibilities of the instrument. Uh, so that's kind of, where I'm leaning for now to see how we can approach the melodic uh, view of that. There's like a clinic that I give. I, I was going to tour with it at the end of March, but it turned kind of turned on to some online things. I've done it online for a couple people. Um, but it is, you know, like approaching uh, instruments uh, that are usually monotonal and approaching them as I would if I were going to play like xylophone or marimba or something like that. Um, and so, you know, having this like melodic idea behind it. And so the pieces that I use in that are this like, uh, it's a snare drum etude that's kind of like a rudimental, like marching snare drum kind of sound. Um, then there's also a piece called Temescal, which is for maracas and tape, uh, which is a big trip because it's about like a shaman experience. And so there's like a spiritual journey through the piece. It's super crazy to listen to. And then I actually used Expense and Retrospect to end it up to kind of like tie in that melodic idea of like hopefully relate to the past two pieces I've done on monotonal instruments and see how I apply the same things here. So those are kind of things that I'm doing. I'm looking at maybe like writing an article to try to publish that or, you know, I don't know, just do something with my career instead of sitting in my apartment all day. <laughs> um, and so that, that's kind of like what I'm leaning towards now, uh, you know, just trying to get ready for uh, auditions in the in December. But... Uh, that was a lot of words, so I don't know if you guys have anything or any questions for me. 
I'm just curious, Taylor. You said that ultimately teaching on a university level would be the goal. Um, Mm -hmm. Other than teaching, like, a percussion studio, do you have any other interests in terms of, like, classes you would like to teach, like, non-percussion outlets? Like, are you into theory or history or, like, just new music in general? I know in my undergrad we had, like, a class on new music. Like, is there any non-percussion stuff you're really into? Um, Some. You know, minimalism is, like, a big tag for me. Um, yes. Think, yeah, <laughs> Me too. I think ah, we found our we found our in. <laughs> well, I think that's a big uh, part of that is because so it's like percussion music as a whole didn't really start until like the 1920s, like mm-hmm. as for solo percussion at least. And mm-hmm. so, um, and then the thing that like started solo percussion was like xylophone rags and stuff like that. You know, that mm-hmm. was popular with the, the mm-hmm. kind of jazz sound, uh, and so xylophones were cool, just like the piccolo, because it was easy to record that through the whatever the word for it is, like the phonograph, like an LP record or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, you know, it was easy to get that really high pitch and distinct pitch from xylophones. So that kind of like re-energized. And then, you know, from like African influences, from uh, Latin influences and from like Western European, that kind of bloomed what has become solo and chamber music for percussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, so during that time era, like has done... Um, minimalist music and so I have done a lot of research on like uh, Steve Breich I've done some research on uh, I, I talked about Ivan Trevino earlier I wrote a research paper on him mm-hmm. um, and kind of just stuff like that uh, Gordon Stout mm-hmm. is another composer that I've written a paper on um, and so it's kind of you know uh, one of the pieces I played for the longest is a piece called Beats of Glass by Gordon Stout which is what I wrote the paper on and it was like a slow moving piece that's extremely minimalist that has mm-hmm. no um clear melody really it's just kind of this mm-hmm. like oral landscape you know experience and like these chords that just kind of move over themselves and slowly move and so you know as a performer there's a lot of difficulty in that because it's like because I, I think that piece was like eight minutes long so it's like how do i make this interesting for eight minutes <laughs> you know because <laughs> uh, i i remember i after i entered like an honors competition at delta state with that and I went to some of the faculty that judged it. Because, like, the honors competition, every music faculty member is in there. Like, from piano mm-hmm. to voice to everybody. So I just emailed a bunch of people and was like, hey, um, can I get some feedback on this? You know, I love, like, I don't even care if I make this competition. I just want to, like, you know, get better as a performer. Um, and I remember there was one teacher that told me that he liked my choreography, but he hated the piece. <laughs> and it's like, okay, first of all. But, and so then I went and talked to my teacher about that, um, and uh, he kind of said, well, he's like, well, you have to look at, like, what these other teachers have, um, like, what their instruments are. That, you know, if it's, like, a, a brass-heavy instrument, a lot of their literature is from the classical period. Like, that's what they play. Yeah. Um, and so they're not going to be very welcoming to minimalism. And, you know, it's yeah. just about, like, what your ear is, like, become attuned to. Because um, it's like what Seth was saying earlier. It's like you had to give the piece like two or three listens to get that like perception of what you think this is going to be out of your head before you really, really get to what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and I think kind of jumping into it that like the minimalist aspect of it sometimes I think because like you've been saying um, there's four distinct sections to your piece but you may not pick up on it if you're kind of stuck in like 
the minimalism phase or haze Mm -hmm. where you just hear like, yeah, nothing's really changing. And that part of the fun thing about minimalism is if you listen deeper into the music, you get all these fun little changes that you're like, oh, this is where this happened, you know? Mm -hmm. Taylor, you told me once that you believe that Steve Reich uh, destroyed percussion music. Why would you say something so controversial yet so brave? I don't know if I've ever said that. Uh, you said similar <laughs> things to it. Ah oh, man, you say I say a lot of things and I never remember them. Maybe that's—I don't know if you're just manipulative towards me or if I just have a really bad memory. Okay, the more new, the more nuanced version of that was that you complained that so much percussion music is like solely focused on the rhythmic changes and like phasing and stuff to be expressed. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's because a yeah. lot of people aren't that original. he destroyed and percussion music. You're I right. didn't say that. Like, no. I, I, crushed it. <laughs> I, he has, so Steve Reich like specifically has placed such an influence on percussion music because of his use of like, you know, he wrote idiomatically for the instruments, which wasn't happening a ton during that time. You know, people were just writing like you, like, Carl Heinz Stockhausen just wrote these massive setups for huge pieces of percussion. And it's like, I am never going to play your music because I do not want to move 18 instruments. You know, and like, I can never tour with that piece. I can never do anything with these pieces. And so it's like, no, I'm Stockhausen writes great music, but I am not into like pointillism and stuff like that. I just feel like you're not committed to the cause. <laughs> you're right. I'm not, man. <laughs> Um, you know, I was, I was really hoping that that was that would change your mind on something. You'd be like, you know what? I should be more committed. I'll move those things. No, I, I 100%. Like, when I talk about accessibility, yes, it's important for, like, people to be able to, you know, find the resources to play these pieces of music. Um, to widen. But also for you not to have to move them room. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's fair. It's, That's it's a what, fair point. Now, having having been on loading crew in high school bands, having been a band director for a couple years now, I completely understand the or the desire to not want to move heavy percussion instruments ever again. Yeah, it's the worst. I've like I can't tell you how many times I've hurt my back or like thrown a shoulder out or done something from specifically marching band, but then even other things. Well, and then on top of that, not only hurting yourself, but if you hurt the like multiple thousand dollar instrument and it's like you know i can't tell you how many times there has been something where it was like okay we bumped the ground when we were trying to lift this vibe or something over it is the pedal okay can we reattach the pedal like oh yeah you know that's what so the vibraphone model that i'm using now they have replaced this is like super nerding i'm sure nobody actually cares but they replaced like that I metal ca- bar. Ta- taylor taylor i care <laughs> they replaced that metal bar with a strap and like oh. it's it's like you know just a click strap like you would find on a, a backpack and it's just i think it's like nylon is what the material is um but it just clicks around it and it's able to get like tight enough to where and it almost like adds expression to your pedaling because you feel like more give and take in that and it's not this like rough rigid metal thing um and so i'm not gonna say the company's name because i don't agree with them as people but those are like the (laughs) the vibraphones that i'm currently practicing on because that's what we have available at my school but um i think marimba wine is another company that also does that 
Um, and it's like, it's fantastic because it almost adds this like level of musicality to your playing that you didn't feel from that rigid metal pipe thing in the old vibraphone models. Not that anybody asked. Uh, again, I care. I, no, <laughs> I, I, that answered I, all my questions. <laughs> Man, I had a whole 20 minute segment based on vibraphone pedal. <laughs> you know, I but actually, I wrote a paper and gave a presentation on like technological advances in percussion instruments. Or in mount percussion instruments. And it, like, I went back and, like, read that paper after I had done it, and it's like, why did I ever choose this? This was stupid. <laughs> I mean, you were talking to three people that have finished their, uh, oh, their thes- uh, theses? Theses. And music theory. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it, it sounds a lot like Just the word Just saying theses. the word hurts. I hope your audio comes out clean. <laughs> yeah. It's going to sound embarrassing. <laughs> Uh, it'll be fine. Um, uh, although, okay, so that does remind me, when you were talking about the snare drum piece that you were thinking about, um, as so that, like, when you're... I had to tune a bunch of snare drums this year because I got new snare drums at the school. And so, like, one thing that I noticed on this specific snare drum was with how deep it was and it didn't have like the high tension Kevlar top. It just had like a regular Tom head and snares on the bottom so that there was, they were very resonant. Mm -hmm. Um, It was, and when I say resonant, it's not just that the sound resonated. It was very like pitch specific, which kind of helped because as a smaller drum section, I was trying to do things like tuning the bass drums to where um, there would be a more reverb just because they were in tuned and then there was more of a, a harmony from the section. Mm-hmm. But I guess, is there, are you thinking on the snare drum piece, like a tuning component, whether their snare heads weren't exactly tuned to each other, like top to bottom or side to side, some weird tuning, or am I just so off base that that doesn't even work? Um, so, I mean, I, that does work. Some of the best musicians in the world um, choose, like, specific pitches. I also, like, when I tune marching bass drums, I, so it's like I do, like, a perfect fifth, a perfect fourth, then a major third and a minor second. I, that... I did, uh, I tried to do, because um, I wanted a diminished chord, but mm-hmm. I think my biggest bass was, like, 28 inches but then the next one down was instead of two inches smaller was four and so there was there was like a big difference there so i couldn't i wanted to go from like a to c to e flat to uh g flat um but with that i don't there's a third in there that's not right somewhere but anyways (laughs) um no that's a c e flat g flat right yeah. yeah um so that's what i was trying to go for but then it was like the a to c the c was a little too loose on one of them it was mm-hmm. either the a or the c and so there ended up having to be like i did the diminished fifth first and then tried to find like an e flat on like the smallest bass drum which may have been like a little too tight but it, anyways <laughs> that's what i was trying to do yeah, back the, to what you were telling no i was like it's funny that you talk about that because i've talked a lot to friends about this um 
the whole reason why I do like that perfect fifth up is because it's like a significant jump. Um, and that's also like, you know, maybe outside of the fourth, like one of the most easily recognizable, uh, whatever the word is, like, you know, jumps from like tonic to dominant. Um, a lot of people can hear that. And so it kind of gives you that little extra oomph when you go from three to four or four to five or whatever it is. And then when you do, you know, you redo the tonic in the, the third or the second drum or whatever it is, like four, three, two, you get like the, you get your power chord basically. And then you can use your top drum to like dirty up the chord if you want. Got you. Um, so, okay. So did we finish the Steve Reich thing? I don't did know. Did we want to? With you uh, coming okay. out with your hateful talk. Wait, back to the, back I, to the no, snare I thing love before. Steve Reich, and I don't blame him for destroying percussion music. So the, the impetus of defense is on you. I knew how to say his name the German way, and I yeah, might, I might the offer way. the correct way. Well, well, I wouldn't... Man, you... One, I feel like it's very poor timing for me to say the correct way, for you to say the racist, <laughs> I mean the Hitler way, the exact same time. It's a bad look for me. What have you done here? Adam, weren't you just referring to him as the fourth earlier? No. Well, I thought you said after the Third Reich that he was the fourth. No. That's not a thing that happened. Well, you were manipulating Taylor's words earlier. I'm just sticking up for Taylor. Yeah, see, now you know how it feels when people put words in your mouth. I didn't put words in your mouth. This I removed some nuance. Very different. You did the equivalent of what large media chains do. It's fair. I did make up something <laughs> that you said. Yeah. What? Were we recording the other day? When were you calling the German... Comp- were we recording when you called a bunch of the German composers, like, sissies? Or when did that happen? <laughs> Me? Was that... Yeah. That is not on an episode I've edited yet. <laughs> yeah. No, it was it was within the past week. I just don't remember if it was like in the Discord or uh, okay, so amends must be made on the Kanye West episode. Not the Kanye oh West my gosh. episode. On the on the three albums part two episode, I said that I wasn't sure when or how exactly I got into Kanye West and I was almost immediately reprimanded. Uh, Taylor texted me in all caps demanding credit that he was the one who introduced me to Kanye West and after after you know checking my calendar it does seem to be accurate that we were living together and I was trying to find new rap music when he recommended Kanye West to me so that's where that came from thank you shout out to Taylor I just wanted to clear the air and get everything right on that one but Taylor Uh, as you have listened to the episode that's what Thoughts. I was going to say. What do you, what do you, what are your, what's your take on Ye? Um, so to give some background, I, uh, no, 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 no. I, I want it completely out of context. <laughs> well, so I originally, um, I don't think that I grew up with like mental health issues. I think my mental health issues kind of bloomed, um, right around when I left William Carey into Delta state and they are what they are now. Um, and so I like personally suffer a lot from anxiety, which tends to like lead into depression sometimes. Um, and I think when I was first going through those things, um, was right when Ye came out. Um, so that album, like as an experience resonated with me, um, very significantly. Um, cause there were a lot of things like, you know, especially with that, like that first track, um, which I don't think anybody are like, it's a great track. 
and it but it almost gives you that like feeling of like numbness and like that dead feeling inside of when you just you know you don't want to do anything um and it's like you know that inner monologue that you have with yourself of like what am i even doing and so i think you know you see that experience um i don't even remember like uh, i'm trying to like look up the list of songs so i can remember like what each one is but so but it's, so it's like you know um like the the track where he's kind of talking about like Kim not leaving him as these things got bad and like how she defended him that resonated with me a lot because that was also the time where I first met my wife um so I knew what that was like I knew what it was like to have somebody um stand behind you and um take care of you and you know really uh, make you appreciate the day-to-day kind of things more so because that's something I never did uh, before all of that started um and so I think the album like overall really really um it was just really good timing on Kanye's part. Um, I'm not advocating for, you know, like people with, uh, I've never had to like medicate myself. Um, I've just kind of dealt with it or dealt with it my, on my own. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not advocating for like not taking your meds <laughs> and I'm not advocating for <laughs> saying that you have superpowers either. But I do, I can understand that because it's like when it's good, it's good. When it's bad, it's bad. And I think this album shows that like complexity to um, the disorder and it shows the complexity to like mental health issues um, in a way that I have never seen any other, um, you know, pop, popular music album do. Hmm. And so, so that's, and of course that's also been, I've never liked Kanye for rap and I've never liked Kanye um, for that, I've liked his choices as like a musician. That because there's a song on like the 808s and Heartbreaks, I um, it's Say You Will, where he uses like a heart monitor for the beat on two and four, and that's like genius to me because it's like man, that really adds this layer to the song. But you know, he's still hitting that like oh, I need two and four that we don't want to get with like a drum set or an electronic sound. And so you know, talking about like the authenticity, I think every decision he makes and you know these may be things he's never thought about and i'm just overthinking it and being a crazy person and that's fine um and i think that's that's the thing that i've always liked about kanye and i think ea is the first and foremost example of his ability to express um feelings and mental health and um the state of human like human existence in his music so it's meaningful to you but is it a good album I think so, yeah. I just listened to it again, you know, like, from start to okay. finish. So, like, you know, the definition of a good album to me is, uh, like, if I listen from this, if I lay down on my bed and close my eyes uh, and start this and listen to it straight through, um, have I, <laughs> you know, have I experienced something? And I think um, I think that it is a good album. Like, you know, it takes you on this journey of, like, the numbness that you feel in the beginning to this, like... Um, egotistical thing that you see in Jesus, you know, it's still that, you still see that same side of Kanye, um, it still touches base, but then you see, like, the gratitude, and you see the things, um, that have changed about him, and I'm not, again, I'm not advocating for, like, because you, I think you mentioned in the episode that you didn't like how it took him to have daughters for him to appreciate women, or to respect women, and things like that, and I agree with that, but, you know, it, it shows, it's like you're reading Kanye's diary of, like, here is here is how I have evolved as a person, um, and so and I don't know if you guys may judge me for this, but I've gotten really into K-pop lately, specifically the band BTS. Um, 
Nice. Yeah, and so you sent uh, me that playlist. I still haven't listened to that playlist. I'm yeah, very sorry. Jerk. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> uh, but so there's like so in BTS there's like three rappers, and I think the rappers are genius. Um, but their albums don't take you on that kind of experience. They're kind of like you know they do feel really artificial when you listen from start to finish. Um, and so that's mm-hmm. that's kind of the thing that I really appreciate about Kanye. And I actually haven't listened to him in a while. And so the uh, the episode about uh, his album that you guys talked about kind of reignited my love for Kanye a little bit. That's cool, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I think it's awesome. I think you're just upset because he's essentially agreeing with me and Livy that <laughs> I'm not upset. Why would I be upset? <laughs> you said ups- You said I'm not upset, like you were upset. <laughs> no, I was gonna. In fact, I was just gonna mention that on that episode. I said that I think Kids See Ghosts is a better album musically, but that it doesn't nearly have as much of a statement or experience to make as Ye does. It's funny that you say that, because I don't like Kids See Ghosts. Uh-huh. And I don't like it at all. I mean, it's like great music. It's I think musically it's way stronger. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Just, nah. <laughs> now who's upset? Still not me. Still you. <laughs> Yeah, and you're just you're just saying things to try to trigger him at this point. Okay, I'm not. You're being called Goodness. out. Well, okay. I would enjoy interviewing strangers a lot more. I have a question. If unless are there any other points to wrap up on Kanye? Um, I was just gonna briefly say that uh, with just pop, pop or just that style of music in general, it's hard to figure out where certain musical decisions come from because you never know and kind of like adam talked about a lot on the um classical music and rap episode that you don't know if they just thought it was cool they don't know what and kind of like taylor saying you don't know if that heartbeat monitor really was intentional for two and four or what was the purpose but that part of the fun of what we're doing is that you're analyzing the music and you're talking about all of these things. And so like Taylor's saying, it's cool that whether it was intentional or not, that it happens to be on two and four and that it's the heartbeat monitor. So I think all of those things are a part of why we're doing this podcast. And I think it goes along with like, in the same way we talked earlier about creators um, who don't talk about what it was that they were doing or intending while they were creating something because they either it's too personal or too special or just because they want people to come to their own opinions about it. I think that the I think that the way that the audiences interact with it still happens whether that intentional meaning is behind it or not. Um, I think that you can mean nothing by what you have created and people will still read into it and take different things away from it that you didn't mean. I don't know. <laughs> I agree. Um, my question, and we might cut this out depending on the answer, but I was just curious, Taylor, have you wow, listened? Wow, <laughs> What are you about to ask? Well, it just could be a non-conversation. Taylor, did you listen to uh, either of the other two albums that we had talked about, Adele or Dynamo? Um, I have listened to Adele before. Um, right. I went on like a road trip to go see... My, uh, when I was dating my wife, I went to go see one of her performances, and the guy I rode with played every Adele album that's ever existed. Oh. Um, so I listened to that album that way. I don't, I, I don't think it was um, sequential when we listened mm-hmm. to it. So I didn't probably didn't get that experience. 
Um, yeah. I don't personally love Adele the most. I think her mm-hmm. hits are awesome, but I don't really like her inner stuff. Um, I kind of lean more towards like the the pro- overly produced music, like the synthetic sounds, mm-hmm. um, more than I do like authentic. Because uh, I don't know, the authentic music doesn't sit with me as well for some weird reason. Um, and then I have not listened to Dynamo. Well, if you like really produced stuff, Dynamo may not be your thing. Um, okay. It kind of has that sort of like in studio, like jam session sort of feel to it. So, gotcha. It's not super produced. <laughs> I was reading that they um, they recorded that album from a studio audience. Yeah, you can hear live applause at the end of a few tracks. Yeah, but I didn't say. know that meant anything. <laughs> Lots of bands put that in fake. What sounds I real? I mean, it's just <laughs> it's just like Seinfeld. They there's not really an audience there, Adam. There's just clapping. <laughs> I think well, Seinfeld, it, there really was an audience. Yeah. Oh, Adam, buddy. <laughs> I know we're not videoing so that you couldn't see any body language to know that that was a joke. But. <laughs> well, because I know shows do that. I just wanted to clear. Seinfeld, I like. I know, but I thought you would understand <laughs> that I knew you well enough to say <laughs> Seinfeld. <laughs> we know your knowledge of Seinfeld. We know. I don't know how, but all right. Because you tell us. You share the knowledge. Yes. Yeah. I guess. But do you know how many um oh goodness. I can't think of his name. Costanza? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh what? Neither of those two? I talked about no. Seinfeld in a way that didn't involve Kramer or Costanza? <laughs> Jerry's writer, uh other writer. Larry David. Yeah, goodness. I, I wanted David to be his first name so bad. Oh, and yeah. I couldn't get to a second name, so that was the problem. That's the trick. I was gonna do you know how many Larry David impersonations Livy and I have listened to? Yeah, probably a bunch. All right, I I mean, you know, whether whether it was exclusively Seinfeld or Curb, there have been plenty of discussions about both and how you were do- like binging both at the same time or one. Those after weren't the impressions. Other. That was just me coming. <laughs> I want you to know, in each impression I hear, I hear a little bit of Larry David. Uh huh. It's either that or it like turns into Christopher Walken. Oh, I was going to say, you guys might have heard a lot of Larry David. Taylor's probably heard a lot of Christopher Walken. I have heard a lot of Christopher Walken. (laughs) It's so rusty now. It's so out of practice. I feel like those are your top three is Larry David, Christopher Walken, and David Lynch. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's the trifecta. Those are the three I got in my pocket. I like the variety. I like the variety a lot. I'm happy with those, too. (laughs) Who was there was, I think it was my brother at some point was doing a Ray Romano impression where he just uh-huh. yelled Ray Romano's name. It's <laughs> 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 like, it's not an impersonation, but oh well. Sounds like you worked hard on it. <laughs> um, all right. Do we have anything else for Taylor? Um, I guess, Taylor, if people are interested, you said you're starting an artist page on Facebook uh, where else can they find you? Um, so, so I'm also on Instagram. I have an artist page. Uh, the username that I use a lot is TJB Percussion. Um, so if, you know, if you go on Instagram and type in at TJB Percussion, that should find me. Um, I, you know, weirdly, I hope this isn't like an egotistical thing that is blooming, but I Googled my name the other day and that most of the stuff that comes up is all of my artist stuff. And so even just like Googling like Taylor Burke's percussion, 
um, can find things. Um, there's my YouTube page. I've got a couple of videos out now. Hopefully in the next couple of months, there will be some more dropping um, of some recordings that I'm doing. Um, uh, so yeah, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube are the biggest ones. I post, I have an artist page on Reddit, but I, you know, like the, there's one upvote and the upvote's me. So. Hey, I mean, uh, we're going to fix our Reddit and we're going to make a subreddit. So we'll absolutely go upvote you. Cool. Of course, yeah. That's the same feedback. That's the same feedback I got when I posted the new episode of the podcast to the r slash <laughs> music theory subreddit. Yeah, I mean, no comments, like, no upvotes. Yeah, but so it's like the ones that I post to is like r slash like drumline or r slash percussion or something like that. And so it's like then somebody mm-hmm. posts like a rudimental like marching band high school drumline video and it gets like three hundred upvotes and it's like okay <laughs> I'm trying to make real art here not to anyways. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Have you not seen a high school marching band civil rights show? Oh, my God. That's real art. You know, as funny as my wife, when she was, like, drum major in high school or something, they did one of those shows. It's either that or Tribal. Those mm. are the two go-tos right now. Yikes. Yeah, no. I mean, I like them. I respect them. I grew up in Memphis, and so there is a place in my heart uh, for the civil rights movement and all of that. I just, I got a little tired of that as the show concept. Yeah. And especially since, um, we were in You have a soft spot for the civil rights movement? (laughs) As only one from Memphis can have. That's really how you want to say that? (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm not saying that everybody shouldn't, but, um, for me, there was like a okay, you grew up in Memphis, here's all the important things in Memphis okay, that happened. Right, I hear and you. so I hear you. that's, it's not like, oh, <laughs> That's just goodness, a funny sentence. People. I understand the sentiment, <laughs> but it's a funny sentence. No, I get it, but. I just did like Larry David hands to nobody like, in, my, in my room. You see, I told you, you should have understood the Seinfeld comment <laughs> beforehand. Well, now I do. And then one thing you did leave off, Taylor, is you have an upcoming, uh, Aragon podcast with Adam. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So be on the lookout for that. <laughs> yeah, it's going to come out right after our Twin Peaks podcast, Livy. Come on. I mean, oh, I thought you guys were doing Lost. I, I don't want to hate on I'm Aragon flexible. here, I'm but I feel like we may have a little bit more to talk about in Twin Peaks. I'm just saying. Uh, do you not remember the love interest from Aragon? I couldn't Literally. care less. I couldn't could, care less. Have you, about, have you guys ever thought about how uh, Aragon is just Star Wars with the dragons? Do yes. Not, Adam, I've we, had thoughts like, like that. Had, we've had this conversation. Have on we? A different, yes. <laughs> I knew that somewhere I have a recording of this conversation, but I couldn't remember if it was here. I... It, there's a chance there's a chance that it's in the lost episode because it's not in the lost episode well no I'm pretty i don't certain think it's it not is lost episode. i don't think i mean so. if you so if did you, we record did we talk about that in 2018 or have i just not edited it yet? i think that was the 2018 conversation because i don't Hopefully, remember otherwise i'd feel very embarrassed for forgetting <laughs> so recently yeah i don't i don't remember it so i think it's 2018 you see, I don't anyway. know. I thought I thought I told you because it was in the catching up of like, what have you done? And I was like, well, currently I'm listening to all these audiobooks, and one of them was oh. the final um, that I don't even remember. Maybe of it Aragon. was Inheritance, Man, were... the bad one. 
Yeah, and that's what you said. Taylor, what's your take on uh, Inheritance, the book? um, The bad one is the um, subtitle, by the way. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So as I said earlier, I haven't read these books since middle school, so I don't really know. (laughs) It might not have even come out by then. I'm not sure. I I feel like it, because there was three books. Four of them. No, that's what I'm saying. There's three books out when I read the series, so I guess I haven't read the last one. Oh, okay. Oh, gotcha. I see. Okay, we won't talk about Aragon anymore. I'm sorry. We'll save that for our <laughs> no, podcast. <it's... laughs> yes. Once I reread the books. Apparently. Is that going to be on the network, Seth? Can you can you uh, host that one? Um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> there, there are other questions that I might have for Taylor as far as the network goes, but not Aragon. Okay. All right, well, thank you so much, Taylor, for talking with us. Yeah. Um, guys, yeah, please go check on. out the YouTube video and um, say hi to Taylor on Facebook or Instagram. We'll put all his links in the in the episode description, including the, the video of the piece that he performed, and then all these links into social media stuff. Yeah, thanks, right. guys. Bye.